a couple little things too, the book of Jonah. Uh, so looking forward to where we'll, and I'll kind of give you the whole direction once we get a little closer in the month of March. But turn with me if you have your Bibles uh, to Ezekiel chapter 44. We're just going to do the 44th chapter tonight. Uh, I think it's a very fascinating chapter. All of uh, the chapters related to this future millennium uh, temple, chapters 40 through 48, are fascinating. Each, each in their own right, each chapter uh, has other information that uh, builds upon what we've seen, and then, and then some new things that, uh, that we want to examine together. Um, I tell you what, one thing that I, you know, every year you always learn things. One thing I learned recently, and I'll share this <laughs> Sunday, Ezekiel, I, I've been using a lot of slides for Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is kind of like algebra and geography rolled into one. And you really kind of to break it down. So, you know, I had, we've got new people, and I want them to digest everything. So I used a few slides Sunday. I'm not doing that again. Uh, I, I, I like a couple of, like, augment slides every now and then for a Sunday, but I felt like I was, like, monitoring my uh, 10 things at once. And so, I, um, anyway, so after that, the Lord, I just felt like the Lord told me, yeah, Ezekiel, yes, Wednesdays, yes, Sunday, just preach. So anyway, that, uh, you know, it's one of those things in life, you, God sometimes has you do something just to realize, I won't be doing that again. So it just felt like, for me, uh, no, no matter what you felt about it, but I was like, yeah, I really like, uh, the New Testament books a lot of times are like a, a good book, like literature, if you will, and you just want to tell the story. Whereas some of these Old Testament books, you've got to break them down like piece by piece and parse out so you understand. So does that make sense to you? And that's what's one thing where you'll learn as you study the Bible is that the books of the Bible are so vastly different. Wait, wait till we look at Proverbs. Proverbs, I guarantee I will teach it differently than any other book I've ever taught. Because it is, if you've read the book of Proverbs, it's so different. It's just, it moves from one sentence to the next. You're like, where did that come from? And it's just a, it's one uh, wisdom idiom after another, and they just kind of, some of them are tied together, some of them are, would seem to us be kind of random, so we'll look at uh, a totally different uh, look and feel. Uh, and that's what's kind of exciting about going through the Bible, is we get to see God's different ways of speaking to us. Just like He speaks to you in different ways throughout the day, and throughout the week, and throughout maybe your prayer life, and through other people. We're looking forward to seeing how he does that as well. Okay, so Ezekiel chapter 44. I'm not going to read the entire chapter as we've been doing, but I'll, I'll read enough that you get a good flavor of what the most important points are that we want to look at tonight. Um, and so starting with verse 1, Ezekiel 44, verse 1, he says, And then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord, he shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Also he brought me by way of the north to the front of the temple, so I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears uh, all that I say concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all of its laws. Um, 
mark well who may enter the sanctuary, all who go out of the sanctuary, and all who go out of the sanctuary. Uh, drop down to verse, um, actually in verse 6, the bottom half of verse 6, let us have no more of your abominations. Verse 7, uh, when you brought in foreigners and uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh in my sanctuary to defile it. Drop down to uh, verse 9, thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. So again, no foreigner, even who's uncircumcised in heart, can enter into the temple grounds. Verse 10, and the Levites who went far from me, and when Israel went astray, who strayed from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house, or ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before me to minister to them, because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have raised my hand and oath against them, says the Lord God. They shall bear their iniquity. They shall not come near me to minister to me as priests, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their sin and shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will allow them to keep or make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and all the work is to be done. Verse 15, but the priest, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, says the Lord. They shall enter my uh, sanctuary and they shall come near my table to minister to me and they shall keep uh, me charge. Verse 17 is an important verse. Uh, and it shall be whenever they enter the gates, the inner court, they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates. So no wool. Verse 18, they'll have linen turbans on their heads and trousers. Uh, won't, they won't wear anything that causes them to sweat. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Verse 19, when they go out of the uh, court... To the outer court, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered and leave, the, uh, leave them in the holy chambers, put on other garments, uh, in their, uh, and in their holy garments they shall not sanctify the people. Verse 20, they shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. A good tip for everyone there. Keep their hair well trimmed. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Verse 22, they shall not take a wife or a widow, a divorced woman, but take only virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of the priest. Shall teach my people the difference between holy and unholy. Uh, in verse 24, in controversy, they'll stand as judges. Uh, verse 25, they'll not defile themselves by coming near a dead person, only their father, mother, uh, son or daughter, or brother or unmarried sister, may they defile themselves. And then they have a period of cleansing time in verse 26. Um, and then it goes on to say, in regard to the inheritance, verse 28, in regard to inheritance, uh, I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession, Israel, for I am their inheritance. And then uh, to verse 30, uh, they get the, uh, the best of all the first fruits. So all the offerings that come, the sons of Zadok, the priesthood here, uh, get the best of any first fruit and sacrifice. Uh, this shall be the priest. Also, you shall give to the priest the first of your ground meal and cause a blessing to rest on your house. So here God says, when you give of your first fruits to them, your house will be blessed, is what the Lord 
is saying here. And the priest shall not eat anything, uh, bird or beast that died naturally or is torn by wild beast. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask now for your spirit to minister afresh and anew tonight. Uh, Lord, take uh, this passage of scripture and Lord, may it come alive to us in Lord, ways that uh, we need for our own life today. Uh, but Lord, that we would understand what you're going to be doing, but also, Lord, uh, you would do a fresh work in us tonight. Uh, we thank you for this time. Bless it, sanctify it, and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, you see the, uh, the title of uh, our study tonight, Holy and Holy uh, prepared, that God has uh, not only a holy work in store uh, for what the temple uh, will look like and the different uh, job roles, if you will, that will take place within the temple, but he also has it uh, very detailed. Everything uh, is line by line exactly the way the Lord uh, wants us to understand it. And uh, certainly some of the things that we uh, are looking at we can understand now, but some of them will make a whole lot more sense when we get there. So we want to look at uh, what we can understand and what the text does tell us. Uh, God's not giving Ezekiel every little detail here, uh, but he is giving him quite a bit uh, that we can understand what things would look like to some degree. And so the first thing we look at in verse 44, uh, then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces toward the east. So the first thing we want to look at tonight is this east gate. And so the east gate, it's also called uh, the golden gate. Ever heard of that term? Not just the bridge in San Francisco, but it's also called the golden gate. It's also called the beautiful gate. You'll see that in the book of Acts. Uh, it's also called the gate of mercy, which would make a lot of sense because Jesus is merciful. And so these are some of the other names of the east gate. Uh, it faces the Mount of Olives, so they're uh, facing east there. And if you look on the slide, um, there's the outer gate, which is exactly what he's talking about in these first few verses. There's the outer east gate, and then you have right here is the inner east gate. Recall, in, in previous weeks, we've looked at much larger pictures, but this is more, we're not getting back into all that detail, but just as a way of refreshing your memory, outer east gate, inner east gate, all the way into the temple, into the sanctuary, and then the rear of it would be the Holy of Holies. So that, he's speaking specifically right now of the outer east gate, and uh, this gate faces east, faces towards, directly faces the Mount of Olives. So you've, you look east out of the temple, if you get a chance to go to Israel and you're up there on the temple mount where today the Dome of the Rock is, you look straight east, you're looking right at uh, the Mount of Olives. And uh, as we have been discussing our Luke study, Jesus entered the temple that week of Passover, that Passion Week as he comes down the Jericho Road, which cuts across the face of the Mount of Olives, and then he enters in uh, through the East Gate. Uh, coming down from uh, the East is something he will do again uh, at the end of the Tribulation period in Zechariah 14.4. Uh, we're told that when Jesus comes again after defeating the Antichrist, des de destroying his enemies, and rescuing the remnant of Israel, he will once again come from the east. Uh, and actually he'll be standing on the Mount of Olives when it splits in two. And that's where you get that stream that's eventually going to run 
the stream runs, you can see it right there, a little blue, the stream that runs from, under, uh, from the center of the temple all the way, and it'll cut through that valley. And so all that, again, you're facing east there. Uh, the stream is headed towards the east. It'll run into the uh, Dead Sea. We'll uh, look at some of these things uh, we get a little further on as well. Uh, the east gate, it also faces the rising of the sun. You all know the sun rises in the east. Uh, whenever we go on vacation, I pretty much ignore the sunrise and I enjoy the sunset. But uh, for those of you that like to be up with the rising of the sun, uh, you do have um, the rising of the sun is going to be in the east. And there's some uh, biblical kind of uh, uh, imagery here as well uh, because Jesus... He rose from the dead when? Early in the morning with the rising of the sun. That's why many churches will do a sunrise service. Uh, Not just because it sounds neat, but he actually did rise on the first day of the week, early in the morning, with the rising of the sun. And not only that, uh, but when you think about when the sun rises, it drives out the darkness. It gives us clear, we can actually see clearly All the things that Jesus does, drives out the darkness, we can see clearly. And then in Malachi 4.2, which is a messianic passage, uh, speaking of Jesus to come, it says, to you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, but it says in your Bibles, sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. So we think about, you know, the face is east, Jesus comes from the east, the sun rises in the east. He rises from the dead uh, with the rise in the sun. So you have a lot of that imagery. Uh, every little detail matters to God. And he stitches together things that were thousands of years ago and pulls them all together. And we see, uh, even now we see dimly, but someday when we get to heaven we'll see even more clearly these, these uh, various things that God has connected that tell the story of really uh, his son and the Messiah. Now, the next thing we want to look at uh, we have the east gate, and facing east there, uh, but it says it's securely shut. It just says it is shut and it will remain shut because the Lord God of Israel has entered in. Um, wh- once God passes, once Jesus passes through, and I believe when it, when it speaks of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, I believe this is actually Jesus walking through the outer gate and in through the inner gate all the way into his throne um, is the Holy Spirit God is God God or is Jesus God? Yes. So whenever you see Jesus um, or, or you see the manifestations of uh, like in verse 43 it talks about uh, the soles of my feet. Uh, Jesus is the representation of God in human form but when he comes, he will actually come, and at times, he will actually display the glory of the Lord. Now, in a, cer- in a certain sense, he'll always be displaying the glory of the Lord. Uh, but if anyone were to look at God in his full glory, it says no man can live, right? And there's actually still uh, going to be people that are being born that still have to choose Christ or not choose Christ. And our own text tells us that. So it's hard to say exactly how glorified Jesus is, and at certain times he fills the temple with his glory, and really we're just guessing on a lot of these things, but the bottom line is he does pass through the gate of the east in a glorified state, 
to some degree. And once that happens, it says the door has to remain shut because once he has sanctified the temple, nothing of any filth can enter. And people are flawed, so they can't enter the gate. So it's securely shut. Then uh, we understand that um, Jewish uh, religious tradition, it taught uh, for centuries and all the way back well before Christ uh, had even come on the scene in his first coming, uh, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem through this gate, through the east gate. And in Jesus' first coming, the scriptures and the rabbinical teachings certainly validate that. Uh, But to prevent Jesus, or not Jesus, uh, the many people wouldn't have thought Christ, just like many Jewish people today don't think Jesus is the Messiah, but whoever was the Messiah, uh, Muslims under the rule of uh, Suleiman sealed the East Gate. We've talked about this before. Suleiman sealed the East Gate based on traditions, based on biblical teaching that the Messiah would come through the East Gate, and so it's sealed, and that's the East Gate today. It's the only gate in Jerusalem that is sealed, even though they've rebuilt all the other gates. This is the one gate, as I told you before, that actually sits directly, directly over the original gate that Solomon built, which is underneath of this gate. And so this gate is sealed, but the one underneath is sealed too because it has earth in it. So they both effectively, everything there, which I believe is just um, God's way of kind of foreshadowing that it would be shut. It's shut now, it'll be shut again, although Jesus would enter it, and then it'll be shut. But in the millennium, it will remain primarily shut, but not exclusively shut. Primarily shut. Uh, According to chapter 46, and we get to 46, you'll see these verses, but when we get to chapter 46, uh, it says that the gate, the outer gate there, is shut six working days, but guess what day it's open? The Sabbath. It's open on the Sabbath day. But even when it's open on the Sabbath day, um, not every, no one else can enter the gate except for one exception, which we'll get to in just a second. Uh, the people won't be able to enter it, even though it will be open on the Sabbath, but they could kind of like stand at a distance and look through, but not enter it, only on the Sabbath. The other six days, it's shut. In Revelation uh, 21.5, we see something that's uh, kind of uh, a really, we understand that the millennium is more of a paradise than this world has ever seen before, except for perhaps the Garden of Eden. But it's still not perfect because the gate is shut six days a week. But in heaven, guess what? The gates will never, ever be shut. None of them. Revelation 21.25, it says, Its gates, speaking of heaven, shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. So even in the millennium reign, even though the temple is glorious, because there's still sin on the earth, there's still people that are not choosing Christ, it's not heaven yet, but it's a whole lot more like it than anything we will have ever seen in our lifetime. Uh, and it is, a glori- it is a glorious thousand years but not a perfect uh, condition on the earth because there's still sin there. So it's shut for six days, open uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, it appears there's still a period of waiting 
for the nation of Israel. Still some learning to do. You can see where God is still saying, even to the priesthood, you know, some of them are just descendants. Descendants of a couple thousand years back, God says, and you're going to bear the iniquity of what you did. Isn't that interesting? That God's speaking to descendants of the priesthood and say, you will bear the iniquity. By the way, our children and grandchildren will bear the iniquity of some of the things we are doing right now in this country. Do you realize that? That God will actually require it of future generations. Uh, don't understand how all that works, but the Bible says that even the sins of the fathers extend third and fourth generation. Uh, but uh, there is still a period of learning in some respects uh, for Israel. Now the third thing, so the gate is, the gate is shut. The entrance of the Lord. And we talked about this a little bit already. Uh, when, when the Lord Jesus enters through that gate, uh, in some respects, he will look far more glorified, I believe, than anything you would have seen when he was walking the shores of Galilee, and even probably post-resurrection, because in the post-resurrection, even though he could walk through walls, as you, as you, uh, he just kind of appears in rooms and things like that, even though he was doing those things, uh, they didn't fall down at his feet like a dead man like John does in Revelation 1 when he is... So it's almost like Jesus can show as much of his glory as he wants. Remember like Moses, he, God showed the rear uh, of his glory, just, just the little backside of his glory. So to some degree, um, Jesus will showcase some of his glory, but some of it will only be in the Holy of Holies, filling the inner sanctuary, much like it was in the Holy of Holies before. Does that make sense? But you're looking, again, and we don't really fully understand what all this means, but again, we know that Jesus is going to enter this gate, and once he enters it, uh, it, is, uh, it sanctifies the temple, his presence and his glory is there. In Psalm 24, uh, verse 7, we've read this verse before, but I'll read it again. Psalm 24, verse 7, it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Think about the gates that are under the ground. Think about the gates that are sealed today. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And not only will these be... Now, when these gates are lifted up, we know that the new temple, they are new gates, but... It's very possible that because the east gate has always been at the exact same spot, it's very possible that the east gate will once again be at the same place as the east gate, and everything else will kind of... Uh, in other words, the measurements may start from that point. I'm not telling you definitively that's the way it is. We won't know until we get there. But it's possible that that would be kind of the starting point. Everything else just kind of comes out from a measurement from there. But the new gates will still be new gates, and like today, they'll be mostly shut, but we know that the King of Glory will pass through them. And he alone passes through them with one exception. And that is the Prince. So let's take a look at the Prince. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands. But some of you, maybe if you've read this passage before, maybe you thought the Prince is Jesus. Because one of his titles in Isaiah is what? Prince of Peace. So that would, uh, that would be uh, you know, one thing that you might, you might think, well, that's a connection. Prince of Peace, the prince, if the prince is able to. But uh, the, the prince is someone, it appears to me, and in many other scholars, 
to be completely and distinctly different than Jesus. And it doesn't appear to be Jesus. We want to look first at the rights of the prince, and then we'll, we'll get into who the prince is, or who we think it may be, or who we think the scriptures tell us it is. Uh, the rights of the prince. Well, the, print ha- the prince has the right to enter the gate, to enter the east gate. Now, only the Lord himself can enter the east gate, but the prince is allowed to enter the east gate according to the 46th chapter. And again, we're getting ahead, but to understand tonight what we're reading, I have to kind of go forward a little bit. When you get to the 46th chapter, the prince is able to enter the east gate on the Sabbath, on the open gate day, only the prince, to present free will offerings. But nobody else, just the prince. He also is able to eat in the East Gate vestibule. So, you know, if you kind of come in our main door here, that's a vestibule right there. Before you get all the way through the second doors, that would be kind of like our gate, right? So you got the outer door there, you come in, you got the vestibule. He is able to eat a meal unto the Lord in the vestibule that the priest will bring him. Just the prince, nobody else. No other person, not the Apostle Paul, not Moses, not Abraham, nobody else but the prince. Well, that brings us to the question, who is the prince? And by the way, there's, again, if you're eating in the vestibule there, if you're coming through the east gate to present an offering, if you're presenting, so on the one day that it's open, on the Sabbath, you're bringing the offering through and you, um, you are the prince and you enter through here, then he could proceed on to where the altar is and where the priest would put the sacrifice on the altar. Interesting, there's an ex- do you find that interesting that there's an exception? Jesus, not a single other human that's ever been born, except the prince. Who is the prince? Well, this is where you get to turn your Bibles. Turn with me to Ezekiel 34. Who is the prince? I can't tell you 100%, but I can tell you that scriptures are pretty solid on it. Ezekiel 34, because there is the possibility, as we go through, there's the possibility that, well, I'll get to what's poss- why, why I would say that. Getting ahead of myself. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, 30. look at verse 23 and 24. Chapter 34, verse 23 and 24. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant... David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. There's the word, prince. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, David's role is directly tied to Israel. Understand this. It's directly tied to Israel, not the whole world. Notice that God says, my people, he's speaking about the children of Israel here. And, of course, that's, the, that's what the 34th chapter is about. It's about Israel. Of course, most of Ezekiel is, and certainly that passage is. Uh, Jesus is king of the world. Speaking about David here and David's role with Israel. Now look at the 37th chapter. Just turn over a little bit to Ezekiel 37. We get some more insight, more light shined on the subject. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 28. 
Ezekiel didn't know any of this. God's telling him all this. He didn't, he didn't, and probably when he first hearing it, he's probably like, what does all this mean? Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 28. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Who? Israel. And they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments, observe my statutes, and do them. They shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant. Back to Israel again. Jacob's just another name for Israel. Where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince. There it is again. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I shall establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. My tabernacle being with them is actually the Lord Jesus himself. He will tabernacle himself there. My tabernacle will be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations of the whole world also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So this is the temple being put in their midst. Turn with me to Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Okay, so then both those passages, God tells Ezekiel that David, David is the prince, David is the shepherd, David is the ruler or Israel at that point. Verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 9 of Jeremiah. Chapter 30, Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Jeremiah just comes before. A little bit of lamentations. Just go to your left, and then you get to Jeremiah. So just a slight left turn there. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I shall... You might want to raise up for them. Not only raise up... Now, you know, everyone, we talk about the principle of duality here a lot. That the scriptures mean more than one thing at one time. If you raise up a king, you actually put him in power. But if you raise him up from the grave, you've raised him up in two different ways, right? You've raised him up. In other words, you've given him your power, but you've also raised him up. Now, when we get this Sunday, you've got to come Sunday, too, because... Jesus is talking about the resurrection. And so the resurrection pay, plays a role. Remember, Jesus says, you want to have your part in the resurrection? Of course, David will have his part in the resurrection. So we see here that, according to Jeremiah, David will be their king, and I will raise, and uh, whom the Lord will raise up for them. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, thinking about uh, the way things will kind of work from a governing or administration of the nations. And specifically, he's speaking about the children of Israel in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus says this, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, what's that? Post-resurrection. Those, that are re those are resurrected and their bodies are regenerated. When the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory. Where's that? Right in here. When the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, Matthew 19, 28. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Who is that? The 12 apostles. Now Jesus is telling them that they will each sit on a throne, each of them judging one of the 12 tribes. Now they're not going to, they've been dead for a long time. So apparently they also are getting resurrected and given certain specific roles. Isn't that pretty cool? That Jesus gives us a windows eye view into the millennium reign and says, the 12 apostles, you guys are going to each have a throne as long as you stay faithful to the end. Now Judas forfeited all of that. 
the Apostle Paul is very likely the one that takes that place. Amazing. So, if they're going to come back and rule and reign, why is it any why would it be inconceivable that David would come back and rule and reign? And then Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5, you can turn there as well if you want. Hosea 3, 4, and 5, one more. Hosea 3, 3 4, and 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a prince, or without a king and without a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, or without ephod or teraphim. Now, how long has that been? That was a long time, until 1948. They abided many days with no sacrifice, no king, no prince. In fact, they were no nation. Verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So, who is the king? Is it King David? Is it a descendant of David? I personally believe it is David. I personally believe that for whatever reason, uh, you know, David was called a man after what? God's own heart. Uh, he actually was the one in Psalm 22 that had the messianic psalm, right? That they pierced my hands and feet. That was David who said that. He had the messianic. Uh, he actually was a king, but he spoke at times with a messianic tone. Now, he's not... Even in, the, in your Bibles, it'll say prince lowercase. Uh, he's not the Lord. He will eat bread. As a matter of fact, it says, in the, uh, it says that in verse 3 about the prince, the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit and eat bread before the Lord. He's lower than the Lord. The prince has a special role, but he's not the Lord. But he is to be in this special role. And what is the role of the prince? Whether it's David or someone else. Again, I think the scriptures are pretty, pretty clear on it. Uh, there is room for saying that it's not David in this sense. Remember in Malachi, the, the, uh, the, the, the rabbis and the, and the, uh, the scholars thought, uh, it said when Elijah comes, and of course Elijah was not actually Elijah, it was John the Baptist and the spirit of Elijah. And so in that sense, there is room that it could be someone that's a descendant of David and actually not David. Uh, but I think that there's so many scriptures that seem to say specifically, uh, in this case, it certainly looks like a, a high possibility. I won't say probability, but a high possibility. But you can study more of it yourself, and the verses uh, are, are there. Verse 3, I'm um, sorry, uh, the third thing I want to look at, the role of the prince. What is his role? If it, in fact, is David, and if it's not David, if it's a, a descendant of David, what is the role? Well, if you didn't catch it in the text of the different passages that speak to what the prince will be doing, uh, it's his role to shepherd and rule over Israel, just Israel. Not the whole world, just Israel. And, and the prince is somewhat of a vice regent with the Lord with a specific responsibility for Israel with the apostles on those 12 thrones in some sort of concerted leadership. Uh, he also has the role to be, an, to, to be a spiritual leader, a spiritual father, if you will, uh, to the people of Israel. And how would he do that? 
by bringing those free will offerings, by showing them that they have to keep coming to the Lord every week, every Sabbath, continually teaching them. Just like we have to know, we have to keep coming back to the Lord, coming back to the Lord. David, is, uh, if he's the prince, would be uh, exercising that role. So that's the prince. Let's look at the next thing, the people. The people. Well, it's not just the people, it's what the people carry with them. And so if you're taking notes, we've got admittance to the temple, and this speaks to uh, verses, uh, primarily verses 4 through 9 there, uh, no abominations, can't bring anything in uh, that would look like idolatry or defilement, anything forbidden by God. Nothing like that comes in the temple. David Smithers said, to love Jesus is to love holiness. Do you love holiness? Don't you love holy things? I mean, when you're in heaven, you're going to get nothing but holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Nothing he hates should be an attraction for us. Now, things he hates are attractive to us. The reality is, Right? If we're all honest, God knows our heart. Things God hates sometimes are attractive to us, even after we're saved. But we have the Holy Spirit that drives those thoughts out, drives those things out, cleans us out. Remember Jesus cleaning out the temple. The temple won't allow any defilement in it in the Millennium Temple. Previous temples got defiled with idolatry, you remember uh, Jesus had to clear out the money changers twice, turn it into an open market. I mean, the temple had been uh, you know, desecrated with just so much um, filth, especially after, uh, after Solomon. But if you try and bring an idol into the temple, not going to work. In the, in the millennium rent, not going to work. to bring it. You try and sneak a temple past the gates, not happening. Uh, maybe set up some money-changing tables. Nope. Turn it into a market, not, not going to work. How about uh, somebody is about to play a song on their iPhone in the temple that's blasphemous? That's not going to happen. That happens in churches. People like, you got people that are visiting, and they, got, they get bored, and they can't believe they even came. They might would listen to music and just tune out. You won't be doing that in the temple. You can just imagine like the iPhone catching on fire or something before you, before you can even think the thought, <laughs> right? Because somehow the sin's not even allowed to enter in before you could think it. You know, someone, if you see someone's fo- phone turn on fire, well, we know what they were about to do. All right, I'm just making that part up. Somebody wants to wear something offensive into the temple. You ever seen T-shirts that have offensive language or images? Like all the time now. Used to be people had some level of dignity. There were certain things people wouldn't wear. There's no dignity anymore. You wouldn't be able to just stroll in the temple wearing something that has a curse word on it. That won't happen. I was thinking about, um, you know, when Pastor Chuck started Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa years ago, Chuck was always so gracious, and he would let anybody come and wear anything. But his right-hand man, Dave Romain, wasn't so gracious. He was an ex-Marine. And he would actually come up to people and say, turn your shirt inside out or leave. 
it's interesting how there was kind of the, the, the soft touch from Chuck and a little bit of a firm touch from Pastor Romaine. But there'll be a lot of Dave Romaine-ishness at the new temple because you won't be allowed to bring any abominable thing and nothing that God would find to be offensive or sinful. You want to watch something immoral on your smartphone on the temple grounds? Not happening either. Nothing. Any of these things, none of those things would be allowed. Now that's what, uh, you can't bring anything impure in, but not only that, the scripture goes on to tell us that no one who's uncircumcised in the flesh or in the heart is allowed to enter in to the temple. No unsaved people can enter in. Uncircumcised in heart means unsaved. If you're saved, you've been circumcised in heart. The, the flesh has been taken away. You've been given a new heart according to the grace and the blood of Jesus. No unsaved people will be allowed into the temple. No false converts. No unsaved or under current rejection. So remember, everyone that enters into the millennium reign is saved. But their children have to decide for themselves. Do I reject Christ or do I want him? Just like our kids have to decide. They have to make their own decision. And if they haven't decided to give their lives to Jesus yet, I don't know how this works, but someone at the gate knows. And it seems that everyone will kind of know not to test those waters. If you're not saved, you might want to find yourself busy all the time and never near the temple. Isn't that interesting? You won't be able to stroll through it. It'll be like a heart check. You know, like something, like a beeper. So I don't know how this works. But nevertheless, no uncircumcised heart can enter in because if you tried to do it, there wouldn't be a Judas walking through. He could walk around. He could go into the temple. Remember, Judas could go into the temple with Jesus. He went, every time Jesus went up there, he would be with the disciples. No one stopped Judas from going into the temple. But if he were to try and enter into the Millennium Temple, it wouldn't work. Maybe there's just like an invisible wall that you would bounce off. Unsaved person tries to run, just bounces off an invisible wall. I don't know how it'll work. But you're not getting in. It's kind, of a, uh, it's kind of a preview of heaven here too, by the way. In Revelation 22, verses 14, 15. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. This is a preview of heaven, where the gates will be open in heaven, but no one's entering into those gates that's uncircumcised in heart. It's a preview of heaven. It's not heaven, but it gives us a little bit of a preview. No unsaved people will be able to go in. Now, unsaved people will be on the earth. They just can't go into the temple. And they will have their time, just like now, to say, I'm still thinking about it. They can't, they wouldn't be able to enter in. Let's look at the priestly roles. First one is the gatekeepers. What is their role? Well, on Sunday mornings, we have greeters at the doors. In a sense, they'll be the greeters, but they also could be the guards of not letting anyone in that is uncircumcised in heart. We don't know exactly what their role is, but the name is gatekeeper. And when you're gatekeeper, you guard the integrity of the gate. So these priests have a role of 
I'm, I'm, you know, maybe our security team or something like that. I don't know. But uh, gatekeeper, and it could be, I'm sure if, you, if, the, if you're a gatekeeper, those that are coming to worship will receive a warm greeting. Those that are coming for wrong reasons won't get it in at all. And so they will be vigilant for anything unholy. Not, remember that nothing, no abomination can enter in. They are vigilant for nothing entering in. Then we have, I already gave you that. Then we have the ministers of the house. The ministers of the house. And these are all listed, uh, everything we read, these were listed out. I'm just kind of showing them to you in order. Uh, they'll be doing the cleaning, the cooking. This is not just women's work, folks. Uh, these uh, priests will do all these things. They have to clean the animals. They have to clean the vessels. They have to keep the temple spotless. They'll be doing the cooking, the cleaning, the discarding of ashes, all those things. But also, the minister of the house, they cut and prepare the sacrifice. Notice that it said that the other priests, because of the iniquity of their fathers, they won't be able to minister before the Lord, but they can minister before the people. One of my roles as a pastor is to minister before the Lord, and that's in prayer and study, but also just to minister to you guys what I'm doing right now. This is the ministering to you. Early in the day when I'm talking to God by myself, that's ministering to the Lord. The priesthood, they'll have two roles. You either minister to the people, and then you minister to the Lord, and that's the sons of Zadok. They minister only to the Lord, but they don't have a ministry to the people. The other priest, and that's the ones ministering the house. They ha so if you were to bring your sacrifice, these are the guys that would cut the sacrifice and kosher. They would actually kill the lamb, drain it, skin it, and they would then hand it over to who? The last group, the sons of the dock, because they will minister at the altar before the Lord. It's considered the highest role, sons of the dock. Because why? Well, the dock, do you know who Zadok, Zadok was? Zadok was the priest during the time of David and Solomon. There's David again, by the way. Zadok was the priest uh, during the days of David and Solomon. Uh, he anointed Solomon as king, but he was faithful to the Lord. Uh, later priest would fall away. Prior priest, remember Eli and the, son, the wicked sons of Eli? He was a unfaith, you know, he was just a bad example, bad role model, and he was in the days of Samuel. But uh, Zadok was loyal to David, and he was loyal to the Lord, and uh, because he was a faithful example, his descendants will have this role of ministering unto the Lord. And then lastly, as we come to a close, as the priestly roles, lastly we have the priestly requirements. That's kind of an eye chart, but I'll kind of go through it really quickly with you. Uh, number one, they have to wear linen garments. We talked about that. Nothing, would, nothing that um, would make them sweat. Uh, they're not to wear any wool. I don't like wearing wool anyway, so this wouldn't be a problem for me. But anyone else like wearing wool? Yeah. It used to be popular. Now hardly anybody. Everyone wants cotton. But they'll wear linen, nothing that would make them sweat. Why is that? Because it's a picture that ministry to the Lord should not be burdensome. If everything you do for the Lord is a burden to you, then you need to get your heart right. Because it, shouldn't, it should be a blessing to serve the Lord. Ministry shouldn't be a burden. I mean, that's not to say ministry is easy, when you're over there working with the children, some days are not easy. But you still have this inner joy because you know that you're doing God's work. 
And that's where the joy comes from. The joy comes from, we'll never run out of joy if we realize that our job is to give out for the Lord. Because the more we give out, the more joy, joy he'll, pull, uh, uh, he'll pour into our lives. So linen garments, nothing that would make them sweat. Number two, they had to keep their hair well trimmed. So there, this was not, you know, just let the hair, it's not the John the Baptist look. You know, that's just kind of, uh, first of all, he was not wearing comfortable clothing. <laughs> Camel hair is not linen trousers. And uh, his hair was a mess, and he was just growing uh, hair everywhere. So John the Baptist was, uh, was a, looked like a wild man out in there in the wilderness. But the priesthood will be orderly, clean-shaven. By the way, John the Baptist probably will not look that way in the millennium reign. When we see him, he'll look a lot different, won't he? He'll be wearing the same white garments that we're wearing. Everyone, everyone that's saved will be wearing these white garments. Uh, but their hair will be well-trimmed. Their beard will be well-trimmed. Everything is well-trimmed. Marine Corps would like that, right? Keep it well. But they can't shave their head. They're not allowed to shave their head. It has to be good-looking hair like mine, you know, just well-trimmed. <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't shave my head. For those of you that do, I'm, I'm looking to the priesthood down the road. Keep, keep some up there. Just keep it nice and trim. That's what, that's what God's going to tell. That's his choice. This is number one choice, apparently. That's Okay, maybe not. Uh, they won't drink wine when they enter the inner court. So in the inner court, can't have any alcohol in there, whatever. Kind of like, remember the Nazarenes? They couldn't have any touch their lips, but a variation of that, but just no wine in the inner court. Interesting that it can apparently be in the outer court um, in certain, boy, if, but you can't, you would never find someone drunk with wine in the temple because that's another abomination, right? This is the first place that people will know when they've crossed the line, right? You ever have people like, how many drinks is too many? That the Holy Spirit will be saying, that is where you stop. Anyway, not that there'll be, I don't know what the, uh, the significance of this is other than to say that um, God has a, a, a very specific place where this can't, is not allowed. Uh, the fourth thing, um, the, the priesthood can't have a wife who is divorced or widowed unless she's the widow of another Levite. Another exception. God has another exception here. Uh, but rather, the, the preferred is every priest has a virgin from the Levites. So, uh, or from the, uh, a virgin from the house of Israel here. Descendants of the house of Israel. Doesn't have to be a Levite, but uh, a virgin from the descendants of the house of Israel uh, or widows of the priest. So if you had a widow that was not of the priest, couldn't remarry. But if it is a widow of the priest, yes. Um, what does this mean to us? Well, God wants us to have marriage relationships where the person we're married to is just as passionate about ministering to the Lord as we are. That's what it's about. Because the purity the virgin purity, or the wife of a former Levite that already was, her mind was focused on ministry. Husbands and wives, you want to be married and have the same heart for ministry. That's what this is, that's what this is pointing to. Number five, they'll teach the difference between the holy and the unholy. Uh, this uh, teaches us that we need to be teaching our kids and anyone else that we can the difference between holy and unholy. 
Uh, number six, they'll stand as judges in controversy. Uh, so the Levites will be the ones uh, which will be kind of the first line of defense of, hey, we, we have an issue here. They, they'll actually have wisdom. That's why we're going to go into Proverbs, what we talked about, that we would be able to have wisdom in, in all uh, situations. Number seven, they won't defile themselves by coming near a dead person. Uh, we are, as we see uh, Jesus talks about this Sunday in our Luke study, uh, we serve the God of the living, not the dead. So they're not going to touch dead uh, anything unless it's their father, mother, daughter, brother, or unmarried sister, and then they have to be cleansed and count seven days, and then they have to uh, offer an offering. Uh, eight, uh, they'll have no land possession. Israel, for the Lord is their possession. This is also speaks to us as well. We should live like this is not our home, right? We should live like this is not our home. We've been made what? Kings and priests unto the Lord. Number nine, they'll eat the grain, sin, and trespass offering. Everything dedicated in Israel uh, is theirs. All the dedicated offering becomes uh, the priesthood. Uh, one day we will inherit the earth of all the things that are around us uh, as the Lord's kings and priests. Number 10, uh, they, uh, the priesthood will receive the very best sacrifice and first fruit offering. And we know that uh, if we are willing to give our lives and surrender to the Lord, God's going to bless it. You will never be able to outgive God. If you really do give your life and sacrifice, you'll receive the first fruits of his blessing in your life. And then the last one, you can't eat any bird or beast that died naturally. Uh, was torn by a wild beast. No roadkill. You're not allowed to eat any roadkill, apparently. I don't think this one's going to be hard for anyone to keep, by the way. Unless, I won't even say a state. You know, there's some states out there that uh, I'll, I'll offend someone who's from one of those states. So I won't say that. But they're not allowed to eat anything that didn't die, or, and they're not allowed to eat anything that died naturally or was hit by a car or something like that. So, in other words, the, all of their all of their food has to be sacrificed, kosher, killed, cooked, and eaten. Uh, you know, picked up the deer, throw it in the back of the truck. You can't bring, hey, we found some free food for you guys. Uh, would you like this? No, you're not going to be able to do that. So um, that's an easy one to keep. But uh, that's, that's where we're going to stop tonight. We'll pick up with the 45th chapter when we get back together. Next week is our prayer service, and then we'll get back together uh, with chapter 45, the first Wednesday in, in March, and then the, the Wednesday after that we'll, we'll have the night of worship. But uh, did you learn anything tonight? I mean, uh, you can study it some more. I, I've poured over it a lot myself, and uh, I, I really, as far as David being the prince, to me it's pretty clear in Scripture. Uh, don't know how it all works, uh, but uh, there is room that, uh, that it could be uh, something else, but uh, fascinating stuff that all these little details matter to the Lord. What I also find fascinating is where God, and even this is, has a rule, and then there's a little exception. Hey, you can't, you can't marry anyone unless you're, well, unless it's a Levite wife priest. No one can enter the gate. Well, unless it's the prince, but only for this time. The do door is shut. Well, except for the Sabbath. So what I know about God is the one that makes the rules can make any rule he wants. Isn't that true? And then when we get there, we'll understand it all and we'll love it. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. 
Lord, uh, just hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Lord, we don't want to enter this place with sin, but we don't want sin to enter our temple either. We pray that you'd keep us clean and falling more in love with you as we walk uh, through this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.